Hello, this is Jim Wallace, and you're listening to a special edition of The Soul of the Nation, a podcast about how our faith should shape our politics, and not the other way around. Today I'm speaking with the Lieutenant Governor of Minnesota, Peggy Flanagan, about the importance of state-level leadership in the midst of this pandemic crisis. Before serving as Lieutenant Governor, Peggy worked as a Minnesota state representative and a community organizer advocating for her home state's children and families, communities of color, American Indians and low-income and working people. She was an organizer before she was a legislator. And for full transparency, Peggy and I are also like family. When I first met Peggy the first time, we were doing a bus tour during a presidential campaign to raise up the issue of poverty in key capitals, key states around the country. We always try to raise up those who Jesus called the least of these, uh, who are the least important, often in Washington and in politics and national campaigns. So we run around beforehand to all those states we were going to visit to visit the leaders. And often you had um, activists and uh black pastors and people who were organizing in the community. So I had this room full of people in Twin Cities, Minnesota, who wanted to hear what we were planning and how they could help and what they could do to, to uh, how we could help their agenda, how we could push forward their concerns in this presidential campaign. And in the room was this, this young woman whose eyes told me, well, whose eyes told me, what the hell is this white guy doing here? Um, and um, why, is, what, why is he even here? And she asked me these very tough questions. And so afterwards, I said, I walked up to her, I said, those are really good questions. Um, you want to have dinner and talk about it? And she said, who's paying? <laughs> I can't I believe said, I'd said that. <laughs> I said, I'm paying. So we went out for dinner, and that was the beginning of this relationship. You want to pick it up from there? For sure. Um, so I uh, I was a scrappy organizer, and I was I had been working for the, the Greater Minneapolis Council of Churches. And um, that moment was really important. Uh, and it was important because the conversation at dinner um, – we had a kind of conversation where I was able to um, truly talk about my faith being at the center of, of my organizing work and, and politics that, um, that my faith uh, was um, just really central to, to the work uh, that, that I was doing and wanted to do um, uh, in partnership with the the people who were most directly affected by the decisions that were being made about their lives without their consent um, every day. So that really started, um, I think, our, our friendship, um, but also a space where I could talk about my faith and not feel weird about it. I think for uh, people in progressive politics too often, um, you know, it's like, oh, we don't want to talk about that. But really, um, I think we should. Uh, we should talk about the the values that and and our faith that that underlie the the work that we do every single day. So that's how that started, and that must have been in in two thousand and four. 
So um, I, I then was able to, to get more involved with, with Sojourners and served on the board and just had a lot of really incredible experiences and looked at organizing in faith communities and, um, and on a national level and built relationships and friendships that have, have been incredibly important uh, to, to my life. But I, uh, I think about that day a lot and just how, how different my life would be, Jim, if I, if I hadn't been a, a scrappy organizer with a chip on my shoulder in that room and if you hadn't seen um, the the potential in that scrappy organizer or that person who was suspicious about what you were talking about or where you were from um, uh, and really uh, welcomed in a young person who was, I think, also looking for a spiritual home and, and founded it at Sojourners. So um, uh, that is that is uh, our origin story. And I think it's it's one that um, I try to remember when I'm working with uh, new organizers too, to say like, this is also who you were. And um, uh, there's a lot of potential and a lot of um, our young people and people who are coming up, we just got to give them a chance and they could become uh, the Lieutenant, <laughs> Lieutenant Governor, <laughs> like, it, like every little girl's dream. <laughs> So Peggy, let's start with this. How's your spirit in a time like this? How's your spirit? That's such a good question. Um, and I, I prefer that question right now to the, the question I think we all are just asking each other because it's what we normally ask, which is, how are you? And that's hard to answer because we're in the middle of a, a pandemic. But my spirit is um, my spirit is a little weary. My spirit is determined. And my spirit is grounded in the fight, I think, and survival of those who came before. And so as we look at these issues, um, taking them one day at a time, but uh, that is how my, my spirit is. We cannot, we cannot rest. Not yet. So Minnesota has experienced and continues to experience rising reports of discrimination mm-hmm. against Asian American community members. You recently made a statement that was picked up by the local Minnesota Press that reads, there is a distinct pattern in our nation's history of increased discrimination during uncertain and trying times of needing someone to blame. Uh, As a response to this, you established a hotline in your state to allow victims to report incidences. What are the steps that local governments must take to protect our Asian American neighbors and other vulnerable community members. Is there a geography of race in this crisis? And how is this playing out in Minnesota? I'm glad, I'm glad that you saw that and you read that because I feel like there is, uh, while this pandemic is certainly something that we are experiencing for the first time, our reaction to it in many ways is sort of the tale as old as time or a tale as old as this country that our society oftentimes looks for scapegoats or looks for someone to blame and reacts from a position and from a place of, of fear. And so I, I think that we are finding ourselves uh, in, in that similar position, but we now have an opportunity to make a choice. And that choice is that we can either respond from a place of fear or we can respond from a place of solidarity and uh, a real knowledge that our 
our future um, is is intertwined with those around us. So, you know, we established this hotline because we heard um, consistently from from community members and the the Asian American community that they were being targeted. Just today, I heard from a teacher. Um, who uh, was outside playing with her kids. And someone said, what kind of Asian are you to her? And here she is, you know, um, just outside uh, trying to enjoy some time with her her children in between also needing to educate the children that she works with from a distance every single day. So the hotline was established um, so that we can start to, to map this out. You measure what you care about. And so we want to really know where are these incidents occurring and how can we be more supportive of the community? Uh, I think it's important for people who are not of Asian descent or who are not from the Asian community to call it out so we can stand in solidarity with each other. Uh, the hotline was also established so that people don't just have to call 911 um, and uh, that we can truly be able to track and then and pass things along when it rises to, you know, truly a level of concern to the Minnesota Department of Human Rights so that they can respond appropriately. But you might also say this. I've heard some people who have said that that COVID-19 is the great equalizer because, you know, anyone uh, can can contract the, the virus. But to be honest, I can't think of a, a statement that is further from the truth. What this pandemic has done has truly laid bare the racial and social inequities that plague our country um, and, and our state. And so uh, that, I think, as we hear folks say, oh, we want to return to normal, we want to get back to normal. Normal wasn't working. Normal wasn't working for communities of color, for Native Americans, for folks in, in rural communities, for people in poverty. Uh, so I hope that we do not get back to normal. My hope is that we truly can figure out a way to center those who are most deeply impacted as we, we look to solutions uh, to rebuild and to recover. So you're talking about what the COVID-19 crisis has laid bare, mm -hmm. laid bare things that were already true already normal, already going on. I would say racism and poverty have become preconditions right. for getting this disease. The African-American rate to whites is like three to one more, get the disease six times die for native people. I don't know what the numbers are, but I'm almost afraid to hear. So it lays this bare. Normal wasn't working for us. It's interesting. You're a person of faith like I am. How Easter was put forward by this administration as a time to go back to normal, mm -hmm. Easter was never a time mm -hmm. to go back to normal. It was to change all things. So what's been laid bare that you see in Minnesota that needs to not go back to normal as we go forward? Oh, I think there's a there's a tremendous amount of things that we can't, uh, you know, we, we simply can't afford to go back to normal. But I do think as you talk about Easter, I think the the thing that I think about so often is how um, we were waiting in a time of fear and darkness, um, but also had faith that a, a better day could come. And, you know, I think it is faith, but it is also making sure, right, that we are putting plans and a vision and, and what we want for all people into action. And so truly what that means for uh, for me and I think also for, for our administration, for the governor and I, is, you know, to make sure that we are able to keep people in safe affordable housing, 
that our children uh, and our seniors don't go without meals, don't miss meals, and that our, our children are able to have an educational experience that is not determined by their race or their zip code uh, and can be connected to technology and, and other things, um, regardless of who they are or, or where they live. And we also find ourselves in a time where access to healthcare, if it has ever been you know, more clear that uh, healthcare shouldn't be attached uh, to your job and we need to figure out a different way to do that, it is, it is right now. So those are the things that you know, I am focused on in this, in this moment. And uh, frankly, we were focused on those things before, but my, my hope is that people are beginning to, to truly see the reality of what this is. Um, that when we experience a crisis, those who are already in crisis are the ones who suffer the most, and we have an opportunity to, to rebuild in a new way. You speak of healthcare and housing. I've often heard you speak about the wages of people who are now called essential workers, people who provide the food and supplies we need every day, which are overwhelmingly disproportionately people of color, often women of color. And yet we can't pay them a living wage. And I think, you know, too, as we hear the the rhetoric around reopening, um, that, you know, I think the fear is that now that the narrative is changing and, and that we're seeing that it is mostly black and brown people who are being uh, impacted more so than other communities, uh, both by um, getting uh, COVID-19, but also experiencing an increase in the severity of the, the virus some losing their lives, and also being frontline workers, essential workers, uh, that that folks are feeling like, oh, now is when the narrative is changing, that we got to reopen, we got to get back to it. Um, and I think that's a really valid and fair thing to, to say, you know, or this notion that we're calling people who are essential worker he- workers heroes. I think the better way to reward that behavior is to make sure that people can earn a living wage, can have earned sick and safe time, um, paid leave, uh, that, that those are the things that, that truly reward work. Um, and I hope that, uh, that we can learn from that. You said a moment ago, a line that strikes me, we measure what we care about. So instead of just saying these things, we're concerned about these things, theoretically, you, you put together a hotline for people who don't have to call 911 and figure out how to explain to the 911 person what they're experiencing in terms of their discrimination. So measuring what we care about, that strikes me as important and dealing with it by intervening in situations instead of just leaving people on their own is really important. That's right. We we also started uh, just last week as, as part of our overall response to COVID-19, something called our uh, Community Resiliency and Recovery Workgroup, which is really grounded in ensuring that we don't return back to normal and that we are centering people of color, Native Americans, immigrants and refugees, uh, low-income folks, people experiencing homelessness at the, the center of our, our response. Um, that work is being led by our commissioner, Rebecca Lucero, in the Department of Human Rights. And, um, you know, we are, are really looking at these issues and asking for the, that disaggregated data so that we can see which communities are applying for unemployment at the highest rate. And you probably won't be surprised to know that for Native Americans, it's one in three of us. And so, uh, you know, when we talk about the fact that you measure what you care about, it's also 
that you know data shines a light um, on things that you know we could we could gloss over or when we say all people should or everybody uh, that we can start to be more targeted in our response and sometimes that makes people uncomfortable but boy we got to get uncomfortable if we're going to move forward and figure out how to get through this and we also have a, a dashboard for the overall and specifically um, overall our response to COVID, but we also have a dashboard that specifically tracks COVID-19 uh, infections, uh, testing, and, and, and death rates by race because we want to know um, so that we can, can be really specific and work in partnership with the community to respond in a way that is tailored and fit to each community who's being impacted. So you're even applying that to testing. Like I'm reading that this week, the Mayo Clinic and the University of Minnesota announced a breakthrough, increased capacity of testing may be on the way, especially for vulnerable people. Now, you said, as I as I read here, this expanded testing capacity will be transformative to our COVID-19 response, especially for vulnerable populations. Individuals living in congregate care settings are experiencing homelessness, communities of color, and American Indians and critical workers. Can you say more about this announcement? Absolutely. So we have been fortunate uh, to be able to partner with folks like uh, the Mayo Clinic and the University of Minnesota to come up with a solution. And, you know, we can't have any kind of strategy where we are looking to, to really um, reopen on any kind of large scale until uh, we are able to, to increase our testing capacity. So we're at the point now um, because of this partnership where we will be able to test up to 20,000 people per day. And uh, I think that's going to be critically important as we look to our response and, and towards our recovery. But would also say that the governor has committed uh, to ensuring that everyone who needs a test can get one, and regardless of your ability to pay. And I think that that is incredibly important uh, as, as we are making sure that people can get tested, but also to have access to the, the care uh, the care that they need. We are seeing an increase in the number of people experiencing homelessness who are in shelter or who are unsheltered, um, who are living outside, who are also uh, contracting COVID. Uh, we know anecdotally here and there that people have tested positive, but um, we do need this full-scale testing so that we can determine how we can really make sure uh, that, that people get the kind of the kind of care that they need. And one last thing that I would say as well is that we know that implicit bias and racism uh, exists within medical uh, care and within those systems. And so it's been important to us, even as we just look at studies in maternal health or other things around African-American women not being believed when they uh, come in with uh, symptoms, pain, in the same way that, that white women would be, for example. Um, and the expansion of testing allows us to say everyone should get a test uh, and will then allow us uh, to be able to remove some of those barriers um, uh, including some of that bias that, that may exist within the healthcare system to get people the care that they need. Unity, using that word, is so important in a time such as this. And as you know, unity is for us, many of us, a religious word, a faith word, a biblical word. It's also a word critical to democracy. Now, you and Governor Waltz have campaigned, you campaign on the promise of representing the different interests that make up what you call One Minnesota. So what does one Minnesota mean in a crisis like this? And there is a geography to Minnesota and to this crisis, which you know well. You've run statewide. You won statewide. 
how are you addressing the unique needs of urban, suburban, and rural communities? And how can that be brought together at a time like this? When we talk about one Minnesota, it doesn't mean that everyone is exactly the same um, or that we're homogenous. What it means is that we work together across lines of difference to do good for people. And I would say that, you know, that is how we have tried to govern. And that is certainly how we've tried to respond uh, to, to COVID-19 and to this pandemic. Uh, talking with leaders all across the state um, making sure that we're hearing directly from folks on the ground regarding their needs um, uh, when it comes to issues like food security, helping respond to the needs of our, our farmers in agriculture, but also uh, medical centers that are in the urban core who are seeing an uptick in people of color who are coming in with COVID-like symptoms. Uh, we have an entire team of folks who are working across state government um, to, to, be to listen to folks and then to be, to be responsive. Now, it's important to remember that not everyone is going to agree with the decisions that we make, um, and there may be some folks who want to rush to reopen, but at the end of the day, the responsibility of the governor and myself is to ensure the health and safety of Minnesotans. So that is what we're going to do. Um, that is what we, we have been doing, and, and I think that is truly um, what it means to, to be one Minnesota. Also knowing that uh, if there are communities where, you know, they are saying, well, COVID doesn't exist here yet. No one's, no one has the virus up where I live. That's probably not actually the case. And that we have seen um, in rural communities that if a handful of people are exposed, that those numbers uh, increase very, very quickly. So we want to make sure that people across the state uh, have what they need and have had a regional response with our, our hospitals and medical centers, um, uh, keeping track of how many hospital beds are available, um, ICU beds, ventilators, uh, PPE across the state, and you know not wanting hotspots to develop and then not having the capacity uh, to be able to, to respond and give people the care that, that they need. It's a lot of, a lot of conversations, a lot of meetings, um, so that we're hearing from folks all across the country or all across the state. So some states bordering Minnesota are adhering to strict stay-at-home orders and many others are not. How do you think Minnesota's leadership on these matters could speed up uh, or, or uh, facilitate the important reopening of the state and its economy? And what states you're working with? Are you having conversations with fellow lieutenant governors? Yes, um, actually, uh, I happen to be uh, good friends with uh, Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes of Wisconsin, Lieutenant Governor Garland Gilchrist of uh, of Michigan, and Lieutenant Governor Juliana Stratton of of Illinois. And in fact, we just did a, a Zoom call together last week to check in on each other. Um, we all are youngish lieutenant governors of color um, who are navigating uh, through this pandemic and it's been um, really uh, uh, helpful and uh, to have other folks who are who are enduring and, and uh, in the same kind of leadership roles that, that we are just being able to connect and talk together has been incredibly important around some of these issues uh, of disparities in particular. We're talking, our governors are talking, uh, and we know that when we are facing a, a global pandemic, we need partnership and collaboration on, on every front. While our federal government has stepped up in some ways, uh, in others, their responses have been 
at best slow to arrive and at worst deeply troubling. And one of the things that we literally have a slogan around our, our office, which is if Washington won't lead, Minnesota will. And I think that truly is the, the spirit of our administration, but also just of our state, because throwing our hands up is not an option. Um, we have an obligation really to protect uh, the health and well-being of, of Minnesotans and folks, regardless of what happens on the federal level. So we're, we're working in partnership with uh, these states around us. And you know, we are we are lucky that we have partners in Michigan, Ohio, Wisconsin, Illinois, Indiana, and Kentucky to work in close coordination to reopen the economy in in the the Midwest region. But I also have to say that it has been troubling to see leaders in other states be slow to react to this crisis because it it truly is a crisis. But we have to be focused, I think, on our state and the folks who are willing to to partner with us and and just keep doing the work and. Um, leading and using our platforms to uh, to protect the health and safety of as many folks as we can. Mm -hmm. Of course, that points to a very uh, controversial question in this country. Governors are reporting back from calls with President Trump in very different ways. Have you and Governor Waltz found them helpful, or is sometimes this another way the administration has propped up misinformation? I mean, how have those calls been? How helpful have they been? And, and uh, what goes on in those calls. A lot of us would love to hear the audio transcripts of those calls. Well, I can tell you this. I don't, you know, I, I am not on those calls. Um, but what I can tell you is that uh, the governor um, and our administration uh, are in almost daily communication uh, with folks at, at the White House, as well as with our federal delegation. And we are laser focused on making sure that Minnesota uh, has what we need um, to be able to protect our people. And going back and forth uh, with, with the president or the administration doesn't help anyone, frankly. And we need to really focus on what we can do here in the state. Uh, Vice President Pence will be coming to Minnesota next week and we'll be doing a, a tour of the Mayo Clinic um, and their, their response as well to testing. We welcome that because we wanna highlight the good work that is happening in, in Minnesota. As I mentioned before, we're concerned about the, the slow to start and sometimes uh, the responses that just haven't been been helpful to, uh, to states, but we're going to keep on on doing what we need to do here and uh, highlight. Um, you know, Minnesotans, we are very humble, so we're not gonna we're not gonna brag on ourselves at all. Minnesotans are also very nice, as we all know, and and need to be nice to each other as you reopen. Especially, in, it's over to the governors now. It's over to the states. There's guidelines, federal guidelines, but decisions are over to the governors now. We will see how that goes, especially in instances where governors are telling businesses, they can reopen stores and in Georgia, bowling alleys, uh, nail salons, uh, uh, tattoo parlors and the rest. Often the political leaders don't seem to have vulnerable people in mind. They seem not to be thinking of all the folks that cannot afford to stay home when their employer tells them to return to work. So what kind of perspective do you bring to this conversation, which will be our conversation? over these next several weeks and months. As Lieutenant Governor, how do we return to business and school and work safely for everyone? We're all looking at places like like Georgia right now as, as they are looking to reopen um, businesses, frankly, that are impossible uh, to conduct 
uh, while social distancing. Um, you know, as, as we yesterday, uh, or we have recently um, developed uh, our, our sort of system for talking about how we're going to reopen um, and where we are as we, we look to, to turn up the dial uh, as, as folks uh, can participate in, in uh, more businesses or in more activities where they will have more, con- they will have contact uh, with, with other people. You know, the, the last sort of part of that dialers we're trying we're looking to to turn up um the loosening of the restrictions are things the very things that that georgia is saying is appropriate right now with tattoo parlors or uh massage massages or uh bowling alleys where you're literally putting your hands in bowling balls where other people's hands have been um you know are I'm deeply troubled by it. And so, you know, we are trying to do things in a very thoughtful, intentional way with uh, the reopening of, of businesses. So we're offering guidance to our Department of Employment and Economic Development to say, you know, these are the things that need to be in place in a workplace if you're going to open up the ability to social distance, uh, the uh, ability to have deep, uh, deep cleaning and, and sanitization, um, that folks will not be reprimanded. Uh, if they they need to call in uh, sick um, and temperature checks those kinds of things so we're we're looking to some businesses uh, that that can be able to to reopen but really with the through the lens of of worker safety and and with the overall health uh, and well-being of Minnesotans so it will be a while before we will all attend you know sporting events or, or cultural events with large groups of people uh, or be reopening those those businesses that require a lot of uh, like that are customer facing or require a lot of uh, direct human to human contact, because I think what we're learning is that it's just it's just not safe. So we're going to be very thoughtful and very intentional. Um, but as we're reopening or we're looking to reopen uh, or turn up that dial, if you will, there will be times when we may need to turn down that dial when we see an increase in infection in, in pockets across the state um, or we see what what's happening isn't working. Um, I think what re- what is required of leadership is to say, okay, this isn't working. We need to try something else, um, and be willing uh, to to turn it up or turn it down based on uh, what you're seeing in, in real time with 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 data and testing. Advocacy for Indigenous families. I know, and I know even more because of of being close to you that even without a global pandemic. There are unique health and operational challenges in both rural and urban native communities. COVID is not making this any better. What does your work with tribal nations in Minnesota look like at this time? How can our listeners understand and contribute to that effort, that relief funding as soon as possible? And how do we bring marginalized voices to the decision-making table, which you always insist Mm -hmm. upon? Well, thank you so much for that that question. I think um, you know I can tell you a little bit about the the work that we've been doing here. Um, but I think it's important to to start out by saying that building strong relationships in a government to government manner with our tribal nations uh, in Minnesota has been a top priority for for Governor Walls and I. Um, I am a member of the the White Earth Band of Ojibwe, and so. Um, 
but clearly, personally, it's important to me. But this has been something where uh, Governor Walls was was leading on these issues during his his time in in Congress as well. So we've spent a lot of a lot of time building relationships with tribal leaders, uh, traveling to to every reservation multiple times uh, throughout the the course of our campaign, and then of course during um, our, our first year in office, as well as um, making sure that that we're meeting with regularity and our, our administration is is connected to the urban American Indian community uh, here in in Minnesota where you know for your listeners uh, more than 50 percent of, of Native Americans don't live on reservations and and most of us live in, in urban communities and too often I think we we are um, we're not seen within those within those environments um, so saying all that uh, it has been, you know, we have a an executive order that, that the governor signed last year calling for meaningful consultation between every state agency in Minnesota and the tribal nations in our state, uh, requiring a tribal liaison to be at each state agency. And then we, we created our Office of Tribal State Relations um, that uh, is essentially helping our agencies through that consultation and making sure that the work we're doing in partnership with tribes in a government to government way will last long, you know, long after our administration, uh, that you don't have to have a Native American lieutenant governor to do this work and, and do it in the right way. So I say all that because having that foundation has been really essential to the way that we've responded and partnered with the tribes with regards to the the pandemic. Because we had those relationships, because we had that trust, um, even though we're dealing with incredibly difficult issues, uh, it was it was easier in some ways to be able to navigate through some of these things. When the COVID-19 pandemic reached Minnesota, we began holding daily conference calls with tribal leaders and weekly calls with urban Indian leaders to make sure that we are aligned in distributing the most up-to-date information, including having um, our federal partners from Senator Tina Smith's office on those calls and from Congresswoman Betty McCollum's office as well. And as the, the state moved um, with closures, our, our tribal nations have, have really moved with us, and we're grateful for that partnership. They, um, they decided uh, to close their gaming enterprises, um, which is the only source of revenue uh, for, for many of our tribes. Um, they don't have a tax base to, to draw from to provide care and services for their, um, for their people. And so that was an incredibly difficult decision that they made on their own. As a state government, we can't tell sovereign nations what, what to do. They did it to protect the health and well-being of, of their people and also the surrounding area. Um, and it's important to note that, that Native nations also um, per, are a place of, of uh, economic opportunity and employment for non-Native folks all across, uh, all across the state and are critical to the economy in greater Minnesota. So, um, I share that because it is just, uh, it's important to know that we're still here and we exist. Uh, there was an article in the, the Guardian uh, just today that talked about when we're nationally, when they're looking at data as far as who is uh, uh, being identified as, as contracting COVID, that oftentimes Native Americans are categorized as uh, quote unquote other. And so you can't even actually see the impact that COVID-19 is, is having on our communities if you don't count us. And during the best of times, I think, you know, at best, Native people are invisible and at worst, we are disposable. So during a pandemic, you know, that is that is amplified. And so we're working with with folks uh, in 
uh, in Minnesota with our partnering with our incredible tribal leaders, but also with our, our delegation in Washington and, and national native organizations across the country to make sure that Indian country does not get lost in this pandemic uh, and that we receive the help and, and support um, for native nations that is so critical. Because, you know, in exchange for all of this, this meaning the United States um, that was built on tribal lands, we were guaranteed two things, and that was access to health care and education. Uh, the federal government has never lived up to their trust responsibilities, and we need to make sure that we're, um, that we're advocating in partnership with the tribes to make sure that they do so. We passed an $11 million um, tribal assistance fund. Uh, with with the legislature that we were able to to quickly get to tribes, because frankly the federal government um, the the funding that was allocated has been uh, delayed um, and is is not coming fast enough. So things were difficult for Native people uh, before the pandemic. Uh, this again is one of those areas where uh, the pandemic is shining a light on the inequities. Um, but the governor and I and and uh, Personally, I know that our people, we are resilient and despite everything we've been through, we are still here and that that is the, the, the spirit and the heart that I try to bring into this work, especially as we advocate in partnership with our, our tribal nations in this state that we are worth investing in. Let's get personal, if I may. You have a lovely daughter who I love being around and comes to watch my son's baseball games and we've. I think I saw her when she first splashed in the ocean. Uh, and, and you're a mom taking care of a daughter and all the parents around the country who are working, trying to work. You've got a job, pretty busy job, and yet you have to take care of your daughter at home and sometimes homeschool her. So you, you're experiencing what a lot of parents who are listening are going through right now. How have you done that in the middle of being lieutenant governor of Minnesota? Well, uh, there are some days uh, during distance learning um, that go well, and there are some days that are really, really hard. Uh, I think for for many of us, um, I don't know that I've actually talked to any parent who is like, I'm nailing this thing. I'm getting <laughs> it right. Uh, I, I think uh, it is so clear to me just, um, of course it was before, but even even more now so just how important educators are and just school communities in the life of a child um, of of knowing that our children don't come in pieces and they need lots of people around them um, to be connected to and, and love them up and that is apparent that that right now that is that is missing in my my little girl's life I'll, I'll tell you that my husband is uh, amazing and he has has taken on a lot of the a lot of the the homeschooling and and helping her access her lessons online and um, you know she she measured him using paper clips the other day for a, a project um, you know so we're trying to make it happen but um, but it's really hard and I can't tell you how many times I have to say um, just wait a second till I'm done with this call um, or I'll be right there and I think we're all feeling that and and it's hard. Um, I, I don't feel like a great a great parent right now, um, but I know that the advice that I would give other parents is that like you are doing great, hang in there. You know we've never experienced this before, and you know my hope is that uh, 
my daughter knows that her mommy, like even just last night, uh, I will get very personal with you uh, as we were, I was talking her in and uh, she was all snuggled in and, and uh, she just said, mommy, your job makes you so busy. Sometimes I wish you had another job. And that's hard, right? Um, that's hard for anybody to hear. But I said, you know, right now, mommy's job is to make sure that that other mommies and other daddies who are worried about making sure that their kids have a place to live and have food in their bellies and that they are healthy. My job is to make sure that that all those mommies and daddies can take care of their little kids, which is why I'm working so hard every day. And I know that it's hard. And she said, okay. And so, you know, I think uh, my my hope is that that will stay with her um, and that mom is doing the best that she can right now to to provide for you and lift you up and snuggle you when you need them. And uh, but I just I do want to acknowledge that it is so hard and um, that that I'm, of course, the lieutenant governor, and I take my job and responsibility to the people of Minnesota seriously. It is the honor of my lifetime to be in this role and to be able to do this work every day. And while, you know, uh, this is not what I signed up for, this is what I've been called to, and I am uh, honored to do it. But I do have to say that my most important job is as a mom and making sure that um, the the seven-year-old who lives in my house isn't afraid and doesn't hear the kind of conversations that I need to have on the phone every day and is still somewhat protected as she goes out and rides her scooter, you know, or chases the the dog around the house, um, that she still has space and time to be a kid uh, and that um, we're able to figure out as a, a family ways to just stay connected and, and care about each other and protect one another during this time, which is just so difficult for everyone. Well, sitting at the same table with that seven-year-old at your inauguration, I saw the look on her face when she looked at her mom and how proud she was of her mom's new job. So she's very proud of you. Uh, More personal, painfully, um, COVID-19 is becoming personal for more and more people, many of us. We have our little notes by our computers on our desks about who we're praying for every day. We have this faith table call every week. And two of the people on faith leaders on that call week after week, uh, they emailed this, me this week and one just lost her mother and one just lost her father. And we were so sorry to hear of the death of your brother, Ron, due to complications from COVID-19. And if I may quote you in an article that you were quoted in the Post Bulletin, you said it's hard, but in some ways, I can just be really honest. It's better to keep busy, be busy. If I had just, if I had to just sit and just dwell on things, it's also just not who my brother was. He was a fixer. He took care of things. And so I think the best way I can respond to his death in this moment is to use the platform I have to honor his legacy by encouraging people to do what they need to do to be safe. In the middle of all this, you lost your brother. What did that mean to you? So this year has been really hard for our family. I lost my dad at the end of January and um, you know, my brother almost two weeks to the day uh, after, after losing my dad. And, you know, my, um, 
my brother uh, dropped everything once <laughs> once my my dad was hospitalized uh, he he lived in Tennessee so he he drove up from Tennessee was by my dad's side in the hospital and you know when my dad made the decision to move to to hospice care um, you know my my brother was with him at home and uh, he didn't leave his side. He was in the room. We all were together when my dad took his last breath. Um, and my brother was the first to see that he he was gone. And he said that it was his duty and his, the honor of his life to make sure that he was with my dad until he was buried. And he kept that promise. Um, he returned home to Tennessee and uh so a couple weeks later, called and said, I think I had a stroke. I'm not feeling very good. He went to the doctor. They ran a whole bunch of tests. And, and what they figured out is that he had cancer um, through his whole body. And so he started treatment. Um, he went home from the hospital after that treatment. And shortly thereafter, was back in the hospital because he was having a difficult time breathing. Um, a few days later, they tested him for COVID and he tested positive. Um, my sister-in-law, Josie, was with him. Uh, thank God. And, and, uh, because she had already been exposed to him, she was able to stay with him. So they put him on a ventilator and put him in a medically induced coma and then put him on a ventilator. And, uh, a couple of days later he died. And my sister-in-law said, I want people to know how he passed away because, uh, some good should come out of his death. And, and it's, it's, um, my sister-in-law, Josie, also has experienced a lot of tragedy. She lost her daughter to a drunk driver, and she said, Peggy, I don't need to do any more media interviews about um, a loved one who, who died tragically. Uh, so she asked me to, to share Ron's story. And uh, we just want to make sure that his the loss is not in vain because he was a man who was a Marine. He was proud to be a Marine. He was proud to be Ojibwe, um, to be Native American, and he cared tremendously about his family. And people who have compromised immune systems, like my brother, are worth protecting. So I would have, you know, fought with with every fiber of my being to make sure, right, that uh, that you know we we're able to, to overcome this pandemic, but having it be so personal has just, you know, ignited that fire, made it even stronger. Um, and I don't want people to think that these numbers that they're seeing are just facts or statistics or figures. They're, they're Ron's, they're big brothers, they're husbands, they're dads. Um, and they all have a story and are worth honoring and lifting up. And the worst part is that we, you know, haven't been able to, to have a memorial service in Tennessee. Uh, you know, eventually his ashes will be scattered next to my dad uh, up on the, the White Earth Reservation. And my family will be able to come together again. But right now it's just, it's hard. And so, you know, when folks are in a rush to open up or are in a rush to say, you know, what does it matter if, you know, a certain percentage of the population dies. Well, it matters when it's someone that you love and you care about. And I don't want more people to have to endure the pain and the loss that my family has experienced. I don't wish that for anybody. Standing around our kitchen more nights than I can count, you would always say, the political is personal. 
political is personal. It's about people and kids and families. The political is never just political. It's always personal. I always know, I also know your dad was very proud of his daughter uh, before he died, his daughter becoming Lieutenant Governor of Minnesota. We often end these in a prayer, and I just feel like I'd like to pray for my dear friend and sister, the Lieutenant Governor of Minnesota, and uh, let me just say a prayer for you, Peggy, if I might. Yes, please. We pray for parents like Peggy and their kids as they try and love up their kids, as she just said, and yet know their kids need the time and the attention the kids always need. We pray for Peggy as a parent with her wonderful husband. We pray for her as Lieutenant Governor, who is trying to make life better for other mommies and daddies, she told her daughter last night. Give her wisdom and courage and boldness to act on her convictions, which is why she's in public office. We pray for her as a woman and a woman of color, an indigenous woman who knows it's not enough just to care for people who've been marginalized, but to bring them to the table where decisions are being made. We thank you that she's doing that in Minnesota. We pray for all those Minnesotans that she's trying to take care of. Uh, may they all learn through this what it means to be one Minnesota. We pray for Peggy in her personal and her public vocation. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, dear heart, for spending time with us. Thank you. I appreciate it. This is this was nice. It's too uh, too uh, not too often that we get to have to to have real conversations about about this stuff. So I I appreciate it. And you know, I think all politics is personal, but there's a lot of people who think politics is politics. So those are the folks we got to worry about. <laughs> Indeed. Well, to hear more from Peggy, follow her on Twitter at LTGovFlanagan, Lieutenant Gov Flanagan. For news, resources, and reflections about our current public health crisis, visit sojo.net slash coronavirus. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with your friends and family and even your enemies, as Jesus calls us to love them too. And what better way to love someone than to share a conversation you think is important. We're available on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. After you listen, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review, and follow me on Twitter at Jim Wallace. Blessings to all of you for the soul of the nation.